All right, so where we are is we're, we're walking through the book of Ephesians, and we have spent uh, the last several weeks in Ephesians 1, where Paul begins his letter to the churches in the region of Ephesus with a benediction of praise. So many things there, if you memorize it and take it to heart, it's so encouraging in terms of God's election, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined for adoption. We've been set apart as his people, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So many great things. And then Paul launches into his prayer for the church. And he says, I'm praying that that you will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your hearts would be open to the the hope of your calling in him, that that you would understand and, and know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you would know the immeasurable power that is toward and in you. And then he gives two examples of the power. The first and greatest is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as he is then ascended to the right hand of the Father. But what you should know is that as we start Ephesians 2, this is still part of that prayer, and it's the second example of God's immeasurable power demonstrated in making dead souls come alive in Christ. And that's where we are, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, really some of the most famous verses ever written. Uh, Once again, I'm going to ask you to read them every single day of this week and keep reading them as we go through a couple weeks of treatment here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is incredibly powerful material. So we're going to read it for the first time today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Please stand. Uh, We like to read out loud. And uh, so please read along with me. The words are on the screen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. Please be seated. I want to greet uh, our congregation at the 1030 service at OP that are with us today, as well as all of our online folks who are watching here today. Let's begin our time uh, in prayer, and then we'll launch into it. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these words penned by the Apostle Paul so many years ago, and yet they speak directly to our condition and the hope that we have in Christ. And I pray for all those that are present today in our worship services, those who are worshiping with us online, that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would have compassion and empathy for unredeemed souls, 
that we would come under conviction of our own situation and that we would rejoice with gratitude for what you have done in your mercy and your love through Christ. That we would understand our role in communicating this good news to our hurting culture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these verses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, this is the heart of the gospel. Now, when I say the gospel, you know what that means. It just means good news. That a lot of times you go to church and you hear the good news, but you didn't hear the bad news. And that's always important. Whenever we talk about the gospel, it is both the, good, the bad news of our condition and the good news of what God has done. Now, the bad news of our condition is verses 1 through 3, and that's really all the time that we have today. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to like it. All right? It's not easy. It's hard on the heart and even potentially offensive for some to just park here and consider the plight of unredeemed souls. It's, it hurts. It's, uh, it's, it can be very uncomfortable and even offensive, and that is actually to be expected. So I actually have one question for you that I want you to ask yourself throughout the entire message today. Is it true? Because if it's true, then we actually have no reason to be offended. Truth is our friend, right? So ask yourself that question as we go through this biblical worldview of, of the plight of unredeemed souls. Is it true? I will tell you that I believe it is. I believe that Paul's description of the human condition is both true and accurate, and it is not at all unique to the Apostle Paul. I will show you that it is consistent with an Old Testament understanding of the human condition, as well as the very direct and obvious teachings of Jesus himself. All right, so all that is to say, you're going to learn today of what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, it is part of our Reformed tradition. It's part of a biblical worldview and I want you to see that it's core. It's a core central piece of both. So buckle up, buttercup. Uh, it's going to get rough, but it'll finish with some hope, and then we'll focus far more deeply and intensely in the good news of the gospel next week. So I will uh, I've named this message, The Plight of Dead Souls, which is very fitting for the Sunday after Halloween. And it has three subheadings. The universal diagnosis of death, three forms of captivity, and children of wrath. This all just comes straight from our text. First, the universal diagnosis of death. You should know that it is the work of all religions and philosophies all over the world, all religions and philosophies. It is their, their job, it is their work to diagnose and describe with words the condition of mankind. And when I say mankind, of course, I mean humankind with inclusive language, but just the old guys, we all talk about just the state of mankind, and there's really three possible views. Number one, men are well. Number two, men are sick. Number three, men are dead. The first view, men are well, is that which is uh, subscribed to by our state religion, which is called secular humanism. This is now the widely held and accepted politically correct religion of our country, taught in our schools, espoused by media, entertainment, academy and even government that we are well if only we can make sure that we have right food education housing conditions health care and opportunities now there are other philosophers and religions that that hold to some qualified view of that that man might be in nature well but he is currently sick 
and perhaps even mortally sick, but his condition is not hopeless. So through the power of reason, hard work, social justice, and careful legislation, as well as the blessings of God, the sickness of men can be treated and wellness can be attained. I have a friend who is a very well-known pastor here in town. In our conversations, this would be his view of mankind. The third view, which is the historical biblical view, is that men are in their natural unredeemed state dead. That is to say that the souls of men and women are not just sick or ignorant or in need of care. Rather, that apart from Christ, the souls of men and women are lifeless. They are as dead and as unresponsive as a corpse. Again, this is the historical, biblical perspective of unredeemed souls. And Paul articulates that perspective here in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, there are two errors that we can make in interpreting this text. The first is to think that Paul's just not talking about us. He's not talking about Western people. He's not really talking about the human condition. He's just talking about those Gentiles, right? We noticed in, in, in chapter 1 that sometimes Paul changes his audience by using the second person plural you versus the second of the first person plural we, right? So when he talks about you, he's talking about Gentiles. When he talks about we, he's talking about the Jews. And here he begins, you, you, second person plural, you were dead in your trespasses. And it's possible that Paul begins by trying to address the Gentiles. But as we move on to verse 2, Paul refers to the unredeemed as sons of disobedience. And he goes on to write, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. So now it's, it's all of us, it's the Jews and the Gentiles, all those who are unredeemed. And, and then as we get to the end of verse 3, Paul writes, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, all right? So clearly, what we're talking about here is the universal condition of all men and women apart from Christ, all those who remain unredeemed. It is not just the Jew or the Gentile. It's, it's everybody. Now, the second error that we can make is to interpret Paul's use of the word dead as exaggerated metaphor or perhaps hyperbole, Right? This is the view of many people. They think, well, we shouldn't actually think that he meant dead. He, he was using that as hyperbole or, or, or uh, exaggeration to kind of make a point. And the reason why people are tempted to interpret scripture this way is because what Paul said doesn't seem to align with our reality and our engagement with people who are unredeemed. Right? For example, I mean, we all have family and friends and neighbors, coworkers, friends at school, who are dear to us, they don't believe, they're unredeemed, but they don't come across as dead. They have sparkling personalities. Some of them are just amazingly great friends and neighbors. And so how can we believe in this biblical worldview that apart from Christ, these are actually dead souls? Uh, first, we must acknowledge what Paul knows but didn't bother to write because it's somewhat assumed. Paul knows that all human beings bear the image of God. This is part of a core biblical worldview. Paul would have had all of Genesis memorized as a Pharisee. And so he's very well aware of the fact that in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created man. He created men and women and gave them his image. He created them in his image. It is the image of God in every human person that accounts for human dignity. And that human dignity should always be respected. It should be protected. It should always be esteemed honored, 
Every human being bears the image of God. As such, we should expect to see glimpses of God's image in all people, which accounts for their good deeds, beauty, creativity, intelligence, and moral consciousness. Paul knows, and we should not find it the least bit surprising, that spiritually dead people can still be productive citizens. They can still be our friends. They can still do good deeds. Absolutely 100%. They bear the image of God. Paul also knows firsthand that spiritually dead people can be profoundly religious people. How many of you know that Paul was a profoundly religious person right up to the point that he met Christ? Paul knows that though all unredeemed people suffer from total depravity of the soul, not all people are equally depraved in terms of their behavior. I mean, just because we say somebody is spiritually dead and they are totally depraved of the soul does not mean that they're depraved equally in their behavior. Some people try very hard to be good people. They try to be very good citizens. Others don't seem to try very hard at all, right? Which is another thing that Paul knows, is that even though God is just and the wrath of God falls upon all those who are disobedient and unredeemed, it does not fall equally. I mean, there, there are those who have, who have sought to be good people and have done a lot of good with their life. They have tried hard. And there are those who have been horrible people and cruel. And God's punishment will be accordingly. But no amount of good deeds can make a dead soul alive. No amount of good deeds can reconcile us to God. Our sin will inevitably separate us from God regardless. So Paul knows all of these things. Regardless of how people appear to you, you should know that Paul was not using hyperbole or exaggerating when he described the universal condition of unredeemed souls as dead. He meant what he said. Dead is not sick. Dead is not confused. Dead is not ignorant or understandably compromised. Dead is not mostly dead, as so eloquently stated in The Princess Bride. All right? Dead is dead. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, death is not a figure of speech. Paul means they were absolutely dead. The fact is, dead people can't do anything. And this is what Paul is talking about, the spiritual state of those apart from Christ. Now, how did that happen? How is it that all unredeemed souls are spiritually dead souls? Paul frames his diagnosis with two causes, trespasses and sins. These are actually not exactly the same thing. They're complementary. New Testament scholar John Stott writes, these two words seem to have been carefully chosen to give a comprehensive account of human evil. A trespass, paraptoma, is a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. A sin, hamartria, however, means rather a missing of the mark, a falling short of a standard. Together, the two words cover the positive and the negative or the active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. That is to say, our sins of commission and omission. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. As a result, we are dead or alienated from the life of God. Now, this is very important. Listen to this last line. For true life, eternal life, is fellowship with the living God. And spiritual death is the separation from him which sin inevitably brings. That's a very, very important way for you to understand what it means to be spiritually dead or or dead souls apart from Christ if they're unredeemed. they're, They're cut off. Their sin separates them from a relationship with God. And if our soul is separated from fellowship with God, it dies. Those who are unredeemed have no awareness or any relationship or even a desire for a relationship 
with God. They literally walk through life as though God does not exist. And this is true. Regardless of how physically attractive or healthy a person is or how brilliant their personality. John Stott asks and answers the question that we all are asking right now. He says, are we to say that such people, those with vigorous bodies, lively minds, and vivacious personalities, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life, and you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. The basic tragedy of fallen human existence is this, that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the good shepherd found us. That's the picture of spiritually dead people. People that were created for God and by God and currently live without God because their sin has cut them off and separated them from him. Now, did the church just come up with this view in order to promote Jesus and belonging to the church? You know, some people think very skeptically. That's the way they think. I want you to know that that this was always the biblical worldview. Look, look, look at Isaiah 59, the prophet writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Therefore, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We are like dead men spiritually due to sin. That is our natural, universal conditions. This view is very consistent with the teaching of Jesus. One example, John six fifty three. Jesus said, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Remember when he said that, hundreds of people fell away. They were very offended. This is very offensive, unless it's true. In which case, it's not offensive, it's just daunting. It's quite horrifying, actually. Apart from Christ, we are dead souls. That is the doctrine of total depravity. It is a historical, biblical worldview. Let me go to my second cheerful subheading, three forms of captivity. <clears throat> Paul describes the state of the unredeemed now in verses 1 through 3 altogether. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. <clears throat> so this cancer that leads to our spiritual death is sin. And the nature of that cancer manifests itself in three forms of captivity. The unredeemed are captive to the course of the world, captive to the spirit of the evil one, and captive to the desires of the flesh. Those are all three subtly different things, but all equally true. First, spiritually dead souls are captive to the age of this world. That's the literal translation, the age of this world. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, 
The word world here is the Greek word cosmos. It is used 186 times in the New Testament and virtually every instance has an evil connotation. Linked with the word course or age, this phrase means the present evil age. Those without Christ are captive to the social and value system of the present evil age, which is hostile to Christ. They are willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the groupthink of the talk shows, post-Christian mores, and man-centered religious fads. The spiritually dead are dominated by the world. How many of you know that is true? This is probably one of the most obvious indicators of people who are spiritually dead and unredeemed, is they are just subject to and captive to the age, the world, the, the spirit of this world. Like they, they believe it hook, line, and sinker. They have very little discernment or discretion, and they are just under it. They are subject to it. Uh, now, as Christians, we know that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Right? It is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray every day. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that because our souls are kingdom. We are a kingdom people, but we live in the world. But we anticipate an age when this time will come to an end, this present evil age, and a new heaven and a new earth and a new age will be introduced where the kingdom is all in all and the Lord is with us. Now, for those who are unredeemed, they know of no such hope. They do not anticipate the end of this evil age. They have no way of diagnosing that this is a present evil age. And so they are part of that system. <clears throat> and that system is obvious. John Sight writes, wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, repudiating God, amoral, repudiating absolutes or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market, marked by poverty, hunger, unemployment, by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. It is cultural bondage. Now, if you're a young person here today, you're probably thinking, right? And it is your nature to do so, and you have my blessing and permission to be that way. I was exactly the same way. When I was a young person, I would hear teaching like this, and I would think, oh, you're just over-exaggerating. You're making a false dichotomy between the church and the world as though somehow they really are some two different things. But you know what? We all just need to get along. And I'm pretty sure that my generation, this is my ignorance and my arrogance, was I'm pretty sure my generation could actually solve this problem. Just give me the keys, right? This is natural if you're a young person. It's very natural to resist this kind of talk <clears throat> of the present evil age and the, the spirit and the course of the world. That is something that you resist, and I understand that. At the age of 52, having a bit of wisdom and experience now and looking back, I see it now like I did not see it when I was a young person. This growing and infinite gap between the truth of the gospel and the spirit of this age. But I couldn't see it then. Such is why one of the hardest things to witness as a Christian parent is the way that the world seeks to seduce and then dominate our children. 
There is tremendous power in the social media, in the academy, in the entertainment industry, and even in government, all of which now work together to shape the minds of our young people who have not yet lived long enough to be suspect of the world. In fact, sadly, the world is very successful in making our children suspect of Christianity. So if you're a young person here today, if you would, please let me just address you personally. The easiest thing to do, the easiest thing for you to do is to drift along with the culture, to not resist it, to not challenge it, to join in with the group think, to just try to fit in. It's the easiest thing to do. Jesus acknowledged this. Uh, he said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. It's just the easy thing to take the wide road. But I want to challenge you <clears throat> to think for yourself. I want to challenge you to not be satisfied with ambiguous answers to the very big questions that all human beings ask, like how did we get here? What is my purpose? What is wrong with this world where people seem to be so beautiful and so evil all at the same time? What happens when we die? You must give an account for these answers. Do not be satisfied to say what you don't believe in. Construct a positive worldview. Because as soon as you do, with any alternative explanation, you'll find that it is very weak and very easily dismantled. I cannot encourage you strongly enough to resist intellectual laziness. Do not be satisfied. Be suspect of the wide, easy road. Be suspect of it. And if you are a suspect of Christianity, that's fine. I would encourage you to be suspect of it all. It is, the <laughs> it is our way, isn't it? We're just generally suspicious people these days. So therefore, do your own investigation. Let the Bible speak to you on its own merits and not the propaganda of this world. But I will tell you that I find it to be the only satisfying intellectual answer to the questions that every person asks. I find it to be 100% true. But I did not see it then. And it is not easily seen sometimes when we live in the world. So continue to think for yourself, continue to be rigorous in the way that you ask your questions. But according to this word from the Apostle Paul, we are inevitably subject to the world apart from Christ. Now the second captor that we are subject to in our natural condition is what Paul refers to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. According to the Bible, we have a spiritual enemy. <clears throat> He is referred to in scripture as the devil, as Satan, the father of lies, the ruler of this world. He is pictured as the ruler over the spiritual powers and principalities that Paul mentioned earlier, those that exist in the heavenly places. He is responsible for the spirit of this age. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, as the prince of the power of the air, he commands innumerable hosts in the unseen world and thus creates a spirit of the age, a cosmos diabolicus in which he knits just enough good with evil to achieve his purposes. The devil dominates and energizes the spiritually dead. Now I know in a 21st century Western audience that many of you are likely to roll your eyes and say, Do, are we really actually talking about Satan and demons? 
Has not science disproven this mythology? Uh, no, no, in fact, it hasn't. And I want you to know in all seriousness that Jesus himself spoke about Satan and demons unapologetically, very frankly, and he is certainly considered one of the most brilliant people who's ever lived. Paul and all the New Testament writers speak of this unseen spiritual realm with an absolute sense of certainty and candor. And I think upon a bit of reflection, upon even some of the most notable events over the past 80 years or so, you might be able to agree that there seems to be some evil power beyond. I mean, can we just consider the brilliant gas chambers that were created by highly educated, sophisticated people who, in their best thinking, thought it wise to eliminate millions of human beings? Can we consider the, the subtle invitation of communism that led leaders to think it in the best interest of their country to slaughter millions of their own countrymen? Can we consider the lies that would lead a culture to demonize a people simply based upon the color of their skin? Consider the subtlety of referring to abortion as reproductive justice. Is it really so difficult to believe that there is a power beyond the physical world that has a hand in these and so many other expressions of evil? According to Paul, those who remain unredeemed are knowingly or unknowingly subjects of the evil one. Finally, unredeemed souls are subject to the desires of the flesh. Paul writes, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You know, be clear here. We have many desires of the flesh that are not sinful at all. We desire to eat, we desire to sleep, we desire to have sex. Nothing wrong with any of those desires. We were made as those who need to eat and sleep and have sex. That's exactly the way that we are. God created us in his image to have these desires. But when those desires own us, when we are subject to them, when our desire for sex turns into lust and adultery, when our desire for food turns into gluttony, when our desire for sleep turns into apathy, then it falls under this same category, this insidious cancer called sin. And we should note that the Greek word epithumia used for desire here typically indicates a desire for the wrong or forbidden thing. How many of you have ever had a desire for the wrong or forbidden thing? Please don't raise your hands. <laughs> all of us. I raise mine. All of us. It's a desire. And if we give in to that desire, we are subject to it. It owns us. William Barclay, a New Testament scholar, writes, <clears throat> When a man has allowed some habit, some indulgence, some forbidden practice to master him, he becomes its slave. As the old saying goes, sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Some of you might remember Oscar Wilde. He was actually famously popular, highly esteemed as one of the world's most brilliant men and writers. He won many accolades and awards, <clears throat> but his fame and glory came to a famous end when he was arrested and sent to prison in disgrace. While incarcerated, he wrote his book, De Profundis, and in it he writes, the gods had given me almost everything, 
But I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of a new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. Listen. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. That's just the man finally being honest. And this is the plight of dead souls that they are subject to. They are dominated by the pleasures of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Now, some of you thinking, you know, I've kind of escaped all those real horrible sins of the flesh. As if. But keep in mind that Paul adds the sins of the mind as well. Subjection to the forbidden desires of the body and the mind. What would be a forbidden desire of the mind? Let me play out the way that I would like to kill you six times over. I'd like to burn your house down. We do a lot of evil in our minds, don't we? I don't think you really want me to go much further. Barclay writes, the flesh is anything in us which gives sin its chance. It is human nature without God. To live according to the dictates of the flesh is simply to live in such a way that our lower nature, the worst part of us, dominates our lives. Again, for those who are without the atoning, saving, cleansing work of Jesus, this subjection to the desires of the flesh is inevitable. It is part of the deadly cancer called sin, and because of sin, we are by nature those who are spiritually dead. Third subheading, children of wrath. So Paul concludes his description of people without Jesus with this descriptor. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, as soon as he introduces the word children, you get very offended. I understand that. It is better to understand this word techna in the Greek as descendants. Paul knows that in our nature, we are all descendants of Adam. Through our own sinful choices, behaviors, and desires, we're all part of Adam's sin against God, and so we are descendants of wrath. Now, when you think of the word wrath, it also is a trigger point. If I told you I unleash my wrath on my children, you're calling the police, right? Because you're immediately associating that word with unrestrained anger, uh, impulsive punishment. But you should know that the wrath of God is not like the wrath of men. John Stott defines God's wrath as his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. That is the wrath of God. That's a great definition. (laughs) And he goes on, he says, we need, I think, to be more grateful to God for his wrath. You ever thought about that? We need to be more grateful to God for his wrath. Why? 
because his righteousness is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way. Without his moral constancy, we could enjoy no peace. Do you hear what he's saying? You want a just judge. You want a God who hates evil. And we all actually want that. We just want an exception for us, right? I mean, when it comes to my account and the people I love, we just want God to transform into granddaddy God who says, oh, don't worry about that. Come on in here, sit on my lap. (laughs) Church, there is no granddaddy God. Get that image completely out of your mind. God is the most consistent, predictable being in all of the cosmos. He hates evil. He will not stand for it. He will not compromise with it. He will always punish it. He will always condemn it. And that is exactly what you want. You don't want a judge who's arbitrary, who shows favoritism, who says, well, sometimes that's evil when I'm in a mood and sometimes I don't really care. You don't want that God. And that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who created you. He hates evil. He will not compromise ever. That is his wrath. That is his judgment. Whatever evil has happened to you will not go unpunished. Whatever evil you have done will not go unpunished because God's wrath is his justice. This is something we can actually be thankful for, but it's daunting because apart from Christ, We are spiritually dead people and we deserve the wrath of God. We all do. We all deserve hell on our best day. And here's the really daunting part of this is that we're spiritually dead people and there's nothing we can do to fix this situation. We're spiritually dead. We are as responsive to God as a corpse in our natural state. Now, if that sounds hopeless, it was intended to. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying you were spiritually dead. You were absolutely 100% captive. Captive to the world, to Satan, and to the desires of your own flesh. You were sons of disobedience and by nature children of wrath. But God. Oh, church. Hey. The plight of dead souls doesn't stop at chapter 2, verse 3. Thank God, right? Because he goes on, verse 4, he says, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Can I hear an amen now? Now you say amen. That's, That's right. We clap over that. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And you've heard that a million times. But if you don't actually look at the bad news, if you do not consider the plight of unredeemed, damned, dead souls, you have forgotten the power of the gospel, the immeasurable power of God towards his own, to those that he has chosen, that those he has elected, to those he chose before the foundation of the world who were predestined for adoption as sons and daughters, you were dead and he made you alive in Christ. Now we're going to spend a lot more time unpacking that next week.
But I want to give you a few assignments. First of all, before we close here, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 every day this week. Continue to read it as we work through it the next couple weeks. Secondly, I mean, I don't know every person here. So if you just happen to be here today, uh, and I just want you, I want you to examine your soul and ask yourself, is this true? And ask yourself, am I a, a spiritually dead person? Or am I, have I been made alive in Christ? And here's how you're going to know. I'll just tell a real, really obvious things. All right. Number one, if you, if your soul is alive, you love Jesus. Amen. That's just a fact. If your soul is alive, you love Jesus. You think of about God all the time. You really want to please him, even though you stink at it. If you're spiritually alive, you will melt at the thought of being adopted into his family. And the single greatest desire of your heart is to see Jesus face to face. That much I can tell you, this is consistent with spiritually alive people everywhere around the world. No matter what language you speak, what culture you come from, that's just common with spiritually alive people everywhere. However, if you really currently right now just care nothing for Jesus, you think nothing of God, your heart is not stirred by the beauty of his creation, the preaching of the gospel has no effect upon your conscience, then you are yet one who is dead in your sin, your soul is dead. Now, does that bother you? Because if that bothers you, like if that concerns you at all, here's what I can tell you. Is that the Holy Spirit is already speaking to your dead soul. Because for you to even care about your situation means that God has chosen you. And that he is calling you and that he sent Jesus to save you, that you were predestined for adoption as a son and daughter, that you will be part of his family, that you would be called a child of God. And all that is left for you to do is respond with repentance and faith in the name of Jesus. And your soul will be made alive. That is my story. That is the story of an awful lot of people here. We'll be very happy to tell you our story. So ask yourself, examine your soul, see where you are, and if you even care. And come back next week, because next week, the sermon's happier. (laughs) There's so much great things to celebrate, what what God has done and his deep love and his mercy for us all, all right? Now, if, if you are part of the church, can we just close with coming to the table in thanksgiving? Like, can we be honest about we were dead and he made us alive? Can we remember what Jesus said that unless you take me in, there's no life in you? And we get to take him in again today in this powerful sacrament of communion. Amen. And can we commit to be faithful to the task that he has called us to be ambassadors of this reconciliation? That we would be the light of Christ because this information is not intuitive. Somebody needs to tell us. And the gospel has been entrusted to you. It's been entrusted to me. It's been entrusted to us, the church, the body of Christ. Which is why our mission statement is to be the light of Christ in this hurting culture so that the lost are found. So that dead souls are made alive in Christ. Amen? Amen. We need to commit to that mission, church. Because we have been saved by grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, we're so grateful for what you've done that we could never do. Give us empathy for those who are lost. They are dead souls. 
unresponsive as corpses to the good news of the gospel until your Holy Spirit convicts them. And, but you've entrusted us with this message of reconciliation, this message of hope as living ambassadors of the light of Christ in us. In our own testimony and story of once being dead and now we're alive. We were lost, but we were found. We were blind, but now we see because of your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you. And I pray that you would empower us now to be faithful with the ministry of sharing that good news with the world. In Jesus' name we pray and all the church said, amen. Amen.